Well, thank you for joining us on this uh, <clears throat> overcast uh, Sunday after Thanksgiving. And uh, I want to begin by just letting you in on, on one of my prayer requests. One of my most uh, consistent prayer requests for our church is that we'd be a church family where the members learn to wisely speak truth and love to one another so that we can grow up together into Christ's likeness. And that's behind uh, many of my prayers. That's behind the books we use in adult Sunday school. That's behind many of the events we plan. But for that to happen, we have to be a people who learn to talk about what really matters. We have to learn to talk about what counts. And that's what I want to address today uh, in the message. And as we think about talking about what counts, uh, there is a sense in which the entire Christian life could be understood as one long conversation, right? There's words that come from God to us with His truth where He reveals Himself. Uh, there are words from us that go back to God in prayer. There are words we speak to each other uh, as we do the one anothering of the local church, loving one another, encouraging one another, bearing one another's burdens, uh, giving one another informal counseling and advice uh, as we face hardship. Uh, and for us to learn to talk about the things that really matter is foundational to everything that wise, loving human relationships are all about. Now, as we think about our conversations and how they can be substantial, I think it's easy to start with uh, what we can see that is damaging to that, right? The negative side. There's negative talk, anger, gossip, backbiting, um, and so forth. But I think it can be harder for us to draw a bead on <clears throat> what kind of conversation is actually uplifting and substantial. Um, I mean, one of the problems that I think we can struggle with is that uh, some of our words, it's not that they're obviously wrong, it's not that they're sinful, they're just not that serious, right? Uh, there's nothing substantial to them. There's nothing of spiritual, nutritional value. And so this morning, I want to talk about how we can be talking about things that count uh, and things that really matter. And as we do, allow me to propose, uh, I'm going to propose two questions we can ask each other and answer that will help us do that as a church family. I also want to propose two passages we're going to go to that help inform us about how to be people who talk about what counts. And uh, in terms of these two questions, they're very simple questions, uh, but when you think about it, they actually get to what's most important in life. The first question is this, how are you doing? And by that, I don't mean how you doing, right? How are you doing, really? What's going on in your life? Now, that poses a challenge to the other person, and the challenge is, how am I going to answer that, right? Am I uh, I'm hurting, but am I just going to say fine because I don't want to get into it? Or is my answer at church always going to be, I'm doing well and my family's doing well? You know why? Because I'm a man and I want to look like a success and I don't want to show any weakness. And so it doesn't matter who asks or what's going on that week. The week could be a wreck, but when you ask me, I'm doing well and my family's doing well because we're in church right? When you think about it, that kind of answer is actually kind of odd when you think about what Scripture says, because Scripture says that man is born for trouble like sparks fly upward. There are troubles and worries and concerns for every day unless Jesus tells lies. Uh, but also, God's mercies are new every morning. Whether we recognize it or not, 
even in our darkest moments, each of us experiences in, to some measure, the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And so there's true things we can share with each other, our burdens, but also our joys, um, our hardships and where our needs are, and also those things that we're thankful for. And asking the question, how are you doing? It invites the other person to slow down, think about it, and then talk about what matters. 400 years ago, Francis Bacon wrote an essay on friendship, and one of his lines has always stuck with me. He, he wrote, this communication of a man's self to his friends works two contrary effects, for it redoubles joys and it cuts griefs in half. I think that's an excellent way to capture friendship, right? It, it redoubles our joy and it cuts our griefs in half. That's a great way to portray friendship. I think that's the goal of Christian fellowship. That's the kind of thing we want for our families and for our friendships and for our church family. And learning to ask, how are you doing? And to really mean it and stick around for the other person's answer. And learning to be a pe person who's asked that and gives an honest answer that helps us move in the right direction. A second question we can ask each other that I think will help us talk about what counts is, how can I pray for you? Now, that may sound like it's a different question, but when you actually think about what the Bible says about how we should pray for ourselves and how we should pray for other people, you begin to realize it's basically the same question, right? It's basically asking, where are the needs where are the hard things, uh, but also where are the joys to return thanks for? Um, how are you doing, really, and how can I pray for you? Those are questions that are intended to draw out what's really going on in your life, what's most important to your existence. And my prayer for Grace Fellowship Church is that we'd be a place where people get beyond just talking about what's trivial or passing or circumstantial to talk about what's really going on in our lives, where the real needs are, and the true joys we experience. And I think the questions, how are you doing and how can I pray for you, are actually deep questions. And I'll confess, uh, one of the struggles I have is sometimes people ask me those very questions, and I'm not very self-aware, and I don't know how to answer, right? I'm a pastor, and people ask me, how can I pray for you? And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like a deer in the headlights, and I'm a pastor. I should know how I want people to pray for me. And so part of what we need to grow in here is also self-awareness. So how could we learn to answer those questions with more self-awareness? Well, I want to take you to a place that may seem unusual, uh, but I think it'll help answer the question. Please turn in your Bible to Malachi chapter 3, verse 13. And uh, if you're visiting with us today, we have pew Bibles, if you didn't bring a Bible of your own. And if you open that up to page 678, you'll be right in on the page we're going to be in, uh, Malachi chapter 3, verse 13. And let me just say a few words about Malachi. Malachi is the last prophet in the Old Testament, last book in the Old Testament. It was written in the 5th century B.C. to a Jewish people who had been restored to their homeland from the Babylonian captivity. The walls of Jerusalem had been rebuilt. The temple had been rebuilt. Worship had resumed in the temple, but there was a problem. Even though true worship had resumed, uh, the people went about it in a way that was only external. 
uh, only ritualistic in a, in a bad way. Their hearts weren't in it, and so God was concerned about His people. It's interesting. You get this interesting contrast in Malachi because the people of Israel are in a better position than they had been for a long time in terms of their external circumstances as a nation, uh, and yet God was unhappy with them, and so He sends the prophet Malachi uh, to address His concerns. And um, uh, Malachi comes with a message. And Malachi's message, I think if we're listening and studying, it answers this question for us. Does it matter how I worship God? Provided that I worship the true God, and provided that I worship Him sincerely, does it really matter how I worship Him? Well, Malachi answers that question. And the outline for Malachi, it's different than a lot of other books. The outline for Malachi, it has six parts. And what it is is six arguments God has with His people. There are six disputes and uh, I think I've confessed this before from the pulpit, I tend to be a conflict avoider. And so, when I read Malachi, it's nerve-wracking. Like, my pulse goes up a little bit because there's this palpable sense of hostility towards God on the part of the people. And on God's part, He's happy to dish out some righteous indignation right back at them. And so, you read through it, and it's like, whoa, this is pretty serious. There's this, there's this incredible contention. It, it becomes an incredibly contentious book uh, as you read these arguments. And allow me to paraphrase what some of the arguments are in chapters 1 and 2 and the beginning of 3 that'll give you a little bit of a context for what we're going to read about in Malachi chapter 3. At the very beginning of the book, God says to His people, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved me? Answer, by choosing Jacob and keeping all of my promises to his descendants. God says, a son honors his father and a servant his master, but if I am a father, where's my honor? If I'm a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? You're presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? By offering blind, lame, and sick animals on it, you've even offered animals you stole from other people. And this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning, because He no longer regards the, your offering or accepts it with favor from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you've dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Uh, what, what the men were doing was divorcing their wives uh, without biblical cause. Uh, you've wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, how have we wearied Him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and He delights in them. Or you go the opposite direction and say, where is the God of justice? Will a man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse because you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. And now look at Malachi chapter 3, verse 13. Uh, this is God speaking. Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, 
what have we spoken against you? You've said, it is vain, it's worthless to serve God. And what profit is it that we've kept His charge and that we've walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now, you know what we're going to do? We're going to call the arrogant blessed. And not only, uh, not only are the doers of wickedness built up, not only do they prosper, they also test God and escape. Well, I feel tense just narrating the discussion, right? It, it's a tense argument. Uh, there's this hostility, there's this contention in Malachi. But then all of a sudden, in the middle of all this contention, you get this beautiful moment, seemingly out of nowhere, you get this exceedingly tender moment that speaks right to the issue that we're dealing with in our sermon today. Look at verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of memories was written before Him for those who fear the Lord and esteem His name. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. So catch what's going on here in the flow of this particular argument in the book, okay? You have people who have this blasphemous complaint. They're slandering God is what's going on. They have this blasphemous, blasphemous complaint that it's worthless to serve God. Now, these people think that they're keeping the ceremonial and liturgical law that's in the law of Moses. Um, they think that they're keeping the, that one day of uh, uh, fasting and grieving over sin, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And yet, we know from an earlier chapter, I didn't read this, but we know from an earlier chapter in Malachi that the people were offering worship that was hypocritical. Their hearts weren't in it. They were just going through the external uh, rituals. They, they were doing it in a way that was meaningless and just a formality. And God hears what they say, and He's going to come right back at them and correct them for the way that they're misrepresenting Him. But that group of people is not the only group of people that God listened to. Uh, he overheard another group of people in Israel gossiping about Him, but it was good gossip, right? Those who feared the Lord spoke to one another about the Lord, and it was so precious to Him that He had a book of memories created for it. He wrote down their words in a book to be remembered for all time. And He didn't just record their words uh, in a book, verse 17, what verse 17 is aiming at, and I will confess, I'm not quite sure how to translate this, but that idea in verse 17 where God talks about on the day that I prepare my own possession, what He's communicating is that these people who spoke truth about Him, He will make into His treasured possession. That, that's what's going on, and I'm not sure how to translate it well, but that's the direction the Hebrew is moving in. He's going to make these people his treasured possession. And so, the picture of these three verses is of a king who's paying attention to those subjects who've been loyal to him, and he will reward them. And when he rewards them, the people who, are, who have been slandering him will quit with all of this foolish talk that claims it's worthless to serve the Lord, that claims that those who test the Lord get away with it, they escape. Um, and what's going to happen is 
They'll quit with this talk because they'll see the reward that God gives to those who are righteous. But that's not all they're going to see. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. And, and this is continuing the argument, by the way, even though we have a chapter division. This is continuing the argument. Um, You'll again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve Him. For, or because, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant that you say are blessed, and every do, evildoer you claimed will escape, will be like chaff. And the day is coming, uh, the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in his wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. And so, in essence, what God is saying to those who are slandering him is this. A day is coming when I will reward those who are loyal to me, and you'll see that it isn't worthless to serve me. But a day is also coming when I will judge the arrogant and the wicked, and you will no longer call the arrogant blessed. You'll no longer make claims that the wicked prosper and contest me and will escape. You'll see the difference. Now, what this answer from God, especially if you look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, what it means is this. God's vindication of those who feared Him really was a future vindication. It may not have even happened in their lifetime, right? What this is pointing forward to is the great day of accountability that's coming on all people, a day when God rewards those who are His and when He punishes those who have rebelled against Him. And so, the dynamic of the passage in terms of what it's teaching is very similar to the problem that the psalmist wrestles with in Psalm 73. If you remember Psalm 73, it's a psalm of Asaph. Uh, Asaph is dealing with this exact same problem that the people slandering God in Malachi 3 are dealing with, except we would say Asaph was a true worshiper of Yahweh. He, this man's a true worshiper of Yahweh, and yet he sees the wicked prospering and it feels like they're getting away with it. He sees the arrogant, and he's kind of wondering if they're blessed, right? And so what happens with Asaph? What answer does he find in the psalm? Well, he tells you in the middle of the psalm the answer he finds. He says, when I pondered to understand this, uh, the wicked seemingly prospering, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God then I perceived their latter end, that they're going to be destroyed. And so, one of the things this teaches us is that you have to take the long view. If you fear God, you have to play the long game. God will punish the wicked in His own timing. He will reward the righteous at the proper time. Now, that's the argument that happens here. I wanted to do justice to the argument of Malachi chapter 3. Uh, but now, I want to transition back to the main point. The main point of the sermon is how we can be a people who talk about what really counts. Um, and I believe this debate and this precious moment uh, with God and His people and this book of memories that was created, it points out how those who fear the Lord spoke about what counts. They talked about things that were actually worth remembering. Their conversation was weighty. It mattered. 
it was actually worth listening in on. But the problem we face is that the exact content of what they said to one another isn't recorded. I don't know about you, but I would so love to read about what their… I'd love to read a transcript about what their conversation was like that the Lord was so pleased with. And um, uh, perhaps in heaven, I, I can't prove this from Scripture, but I think there's a library in heaven with things like this where we'll get to see what was written in this book. But it, I, I, I will confess, as a student of Scripture, it is a little bit frustrating. I'd really like to know what these people said. And uh, this is a problem that I have with Scripture pretty regularly. Allow me to illustrate from another passage. In Luke chapter 24, there's this scene where the risen Jesus is talking with two of His disciples on the road to Emmaus, but the disciples are prevented from recognizing Him, right? So, they, they don't know that it's Him. And so, he, he comes up to them on the road, and He asks them what they're talking about, and they don't, they don't realize it's Him. And uh, they begin, they proceed to pour out their hearts to Him about the grief they're going through because all of their greatest hopes were wrapped up in Jesus of Nazareth and that He was the Messiah, and yet He had died on a cross by crucifixion only a matter of days beforehand. And after pouring out their hearts, uh, their grieving hearts to Jesus, instead of getting comfort, Jesus gives them a kick in the pants and this uh, exhortation. According to Luke, uh, this is what happened. And Jesus said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for Messiah to suffer these things and to enter into His glory? Then, beginning with Moses and the prophets, He explained to them the things concerning Himself in all the Scriptures. And I want to say to Luke, and, and then Luke ends it there. There's a period, and he moves on to what happens next. And I want to say to Luke, and where in Moses and the prophets did he take them to? Like, like and Jesus said, like, Luke, give me some help. Like, give me the dialogue. Tell me what Jesus said. Now, here's the thing. That frustration on my part that is actually a threat. It is a threat to our doctrines of inspiration and sufficiency. Uh, and that's because, in terms of inspiration, we believe every word in Scripture is there by divine intentionality, including words that could have been there about things we have questions about, but God left out, right? Uh, and also, we believe that the Bible is sufficient. It explains everything God wants us to know about life and reality in order to serve Him and please Him and live a meaningful life. And so, how should I handle my frustration? Well, uh, I think there's a challenge in that passage on the road to Emmaus. Uh, if you will indulge me in some sanctified imagination, I think if Luke were here to listen to my complaint, he might say something like this, well, Chris, you have Moses and the prophets. Everything Jesus said came out of Moses and the prophets, and you can read Moses and the prophets for yourself. What do you think he said? What passages do you think he went to, right? I think that's the challenge of uh, the story on the road to Emmaus, and I think the same challenge applies to us here in Malachi. If we want to know what these people said to each other, 
Uh, granted, we've not been given access to the book of memories God made, uh, but I think we have a number of clues that inform us what they talked about. And the first clue is in the way these people are described. They're described as those who fear the Lord and esteem His name, verse 16. They're also characterized as those who serve the Lord and are righteous, verses 17 and 18. So let me give you some examples that I think will help you intuitively grasp what the main topic of conversation was. Imagine if I were to say to you, those who were on the conference planning committee spoke to one another. Well, what do you think they spoke about? They spoke about planning the conference that's coming up, right? The men in the coin club got together and spoke to one another, right? The people at the gun show talked with each other. What do you think the topic of conversation? It's pretty obvious from the way they're described what the topic of conversation was right? Uh, so, what does it mean in this particular case that those who feared the Lord spoke to one another? Well, I think it means they talked about how great and good and just God is. I think their spirits were provoked by the way that God's name and reputation was misrepresented by those who were slandering Him in Judah. I think that they were provoked by people who claimed that the arrogant were blessed and that people could test the Lord and get away with it. I'd wager that they reminded each other of the future grace and reward God will bestow on those who are His when He brings in the new heaven, new earth, and new Jerusalem that they could read about in the prophet Isaiah. I don't think it's a big stretch for us to assume that they probably spoke to each other also about the six controversies that were current in their generation, right? The six controversies that God comes at them with through the prophet. I think these people, uh, they witnessed these controversies. This was, these were the current events, uh, spiritually speaking, in their own day. I think they probably spoke to one another about those controversies that were raging in their culture at their moment. And so, if you actually go back through Malachi, and you look at what the controversies are, again, I think we can get a sense for what they might have said to each other. According to chapter 1, I think they might have encouraged each other with words like this, you know, the Lord has loved us, and when I consider our national history, I think He's actually treated us better than we deserve. But you know what? Life is hard, and sometimes it's easy for me to doubt God's love. Will you pray for me that I won't doubt God in the middle of difficult times, but I'll choose to trust Him? Um, you know what? The Lord says He's our Father and our Master. Am I giving Him the honor a father deserves and the respect a master deserves? What would it look like practically for us to respect Him and to give Him the honor that He's due? You know what, guys? It's common knowledge that the priest in the temple will accept three-legged, one-eyed uh, sheep from us, and then after we offer it, on, after we give it to them and they offer it on the temple, they'll affirm the offering we gave as a good offering and tell us we're good uh, worshipers of Yahweh and real spiritual people and affirm us. But anybody who's read the Torah knows that ain't right. And just because the priests are offering this opportunity to us, it doesn't mean we have to take them up on it. Honestly, we should be offering our best. I think those are the kinds of things 
they probably talked about with one another uh, because they were on the other side of the things their culture was saying that were misrepresenting God. Um, And so I think if we pay attention to Malachi, we can know something about what these dear saints said when they spoke to each other. Um, They spoke to each other about who the Lord is. They spoke truth to each other about the Lord. Uh, They talked about the God who has His eye on us and who is the one we live and move and have our being. And uh, that's the kind of conversation that really matters. Now, at this point in the sermon, I will confess that all I've been able to do is give you a couple of questions. I've been able, I hope, to give you a sense of what it means to talk about what's important from Malachi chapter 3, but I haven't actually gotten into the content of words that matter. If you really want to get, get a handle on what are the, what, what's the content of words that really matter, <clears throat> well, I have… <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sorry. Uh, I have one more suggestion. One way to get a handle on speaking words that really matter is to listen in on someone else speaking to someone they trust deeply. You know this intuitively. When you overhear a conversation where someone is putting the fine china of their lives on the table with another person who they have the deepest trust in, that's when significant things are talked about, if you've ever overheard those kinds of conversations as a third party. And if you want to hear a conversation from someone who deeply trusts someone else, the best place to go to would be the Psalms. So turn over to to Psalm 25. I think Psalm 25 can illustrate for us the content of what it means to talk about what counts. And if you're using the Pew Bible, uh, it's uh, page 402, page 402, Psalm 25. This is a Psalm of David. David was a man who trusted God with his whole heart. Um, and I think this Psalm gives us insight into what the content is uh, of talking about words that count. Let's read the Psalm together. Psalm 25, a Psalm of David. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none of those who wait for you will be ashamed, but those who deal treacherously without cause will be ashamed. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, your compassion and your loving kindness, for they have been from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your loving kindness, remember me for your goodness' sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in justice, and he teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way he should go. His soul will abide in prosperity, and his descendants will inherit the land. The intimate counsel of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he will make them know his covenant. My eyes are continually towards the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. 
The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look upon my affliction and my trouble, and forgive my sins. Look upon my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with violent hatred. Guard my soul and deliver me. Do not let me be ashamed, for I take refuge in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. This psalm is a great illustration of how a man after God's own heart talks to God about what counts. And there's four elements that I want you to note. These are elements that I think we can learn from and can inform the content of what we talk about with each other. First of all, David speaks with great candor about his sufferings. Do not let my enemies triumph over me. There are people in life who want to hurt me, protect me from them. Just a a line above, he says, do not let me be ashamed. I think every Christian who is honest would admit that in our prayers, there's this sense of, God, don't let my life turn out badly. Don't let my life turn into wreckage. Don't let it end up empty and disappointing or or end in some kind of uh, public disgrace. Verse 16, turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. So David is looking at life honestly, and he feels lonely. There are things that are distressing and cause anguish. And instead of running away from God in anger, he runs towards God in faith, offering honest prayers about what's hard. When people trust uh, another person, they're willing to put their troubles and the need of the moment and the things that hurt on the table. The second thing David talks about honestly is his sin. There are struggles inside each one of us. We want to be loving, but we find in the end that we're embittered. We want to be courageous, but in the moment we find ourselves fearful. We want to be pure, but we find ourselves corrupt in some manner, right? There's this moral struggle at the heart of the Christian life, and because David trusts in God, he's willing to put his sin on the table as well. Verse 7, do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. Verse 11, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. It's as if David starts the psalm pouring out his heart to God about all the suffering he's facing, and then he realizes, you know what, There's, it's not just suffering we need to talk about. There's another problem, and it's my sin. And uh, uh, that, is, uh, that willingness to confess is part about, of talking about what counts. James 5 exhorts Christians to confess our sins to one another, not because another Christian can absolve you of your guilt, but being honest about what we struggle with and asking for prayers to give us grace, overcoming the sins that so easily entangle us. The third thing David speaks about honestly is who God is. And we already saw this in Malachi 3, right? The people in Malachi 3 were the kind of people who spoke truth about God in the middle of a culture that was slandering God and misrepresenting Him. So we've we've kind of already seen this, but looking back at Psalm 25, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. None of those who wait for you will be ashamed. You are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. This is just part of the DNA of the Bible, speaking honestly about 
who God is and trusting in who God has revealed Himself to be, uh, believing that He is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness towards those who fear Him. That's just part of what the Bible instructs us in. And so, what you have in Psalm 25 then is the convergence of these three elements. David is honest about what's hard in life, but he's also willing to be honest about his sin. He's not just a victim only. He's also willing to admit that he's transgressed, he's committed sins. But then third, he speaks truth about who God is, and he affirms his trust in God. He's choosing to trust in God in the middle of his difficulty. You have those three elements, and having all those three elements in place, they set up David, they they put him in the perfect position to have a clear-eyed vision for how he can pray for those he loves, and that's the fourth element. Even though it's very brief, you still see faith working through love in verse 22. In the middle of a psalm that's primarily vertical between David and God, you still see faith working in love at the very end. He says, redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. In other words, help my brothers and sisters. So, having been honest about his suffering and his sin and who God is, it then gives David clarity about how he can pray for the people around him. Now, here's the bottom line. Here's why I took you to Psalm 25 in the context of the subject of this sermon. It is a spiritual rule that where we go haywire with God vertically, we will also tend to go haywire with other people uh, horizontally, right? Our ability as a church family to talk with each other about what really counts is rooted in whether or not we're first praying to God about what counts. If we're a people who are marked by little prayer or trivial prayer or shallow prayers, there's not a lot of hope that we're going to actually talk with each other about the things that really matter, because we're not even talking to God about the things that matter in the first place. But where you get a people who are alert to what's going on with suffering and who are willing to confess their own sin and who believe the truth about God, you have all the ingredients set up for a people who ask each other, how are you doing really? and how can I pray for you, and having a group of people that answers honestly and are the kind of people who talk about what counts. So, it's my prayer for myself and for you that as a church family, uh, during the informal times we spend with each other, after the service, at the meal Thursday night, you know, when we have downtime, that we would be a people marked Uh, by talking about the things that really matter, things of spiritual significance, things that count. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it, and a book of memories was written before Him for those who fear the Lord and esteem His name. Our Father in heaven, there's not a one of us in this room that hasn't fired off a how you doing and not even stuck around to hear the answer of that other person. There's not one of us that at times hasn't been asked that question sincerely, and yet we dodge it. We're content with too little. And so I pray that you would help us to wisely love one another with our words, to build trust, to be transparent, to share our burdens, to appropriately confess our sins, to speak truth to each other about who you are, 
and to be a church family that is characterized by talking about what really matters. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.